Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Capital markets are never easy to understand, and there is an array of structures, truly core infrastructures, that support the basic functioning and operation of the exchange of value, and the OTC Markets Group is one. Now, this New York-based marketplace provides the price and liquidity information for almost 12,000 over-the-counter securities. Launched in 1913 as the National Quotation Bureau, the company has evolved over the years to support a wide array of equity fundraises involving everything from community banks to crypto. So as we turn from the summer to a fall full of congressional hearings, proposed legislation, and regulatory rulemaking concerning market structure, micro-issuers, and early-stage companies, I felt it was great to get our listeners the opportunity to hear from one of the most important and overlooked technology stacks in the country, and OTC Markets General Counsel Dan Zinn has been kind enough to provide a personal tour. So if you want your PhD in market structure, this episode is for you as we take a closer look at the pink sheets. Dan, welcome to the show. I hope that uh, reference to the pink sheets, however outdated, got your attention and uh, ready to roll. Thanks, Chris. Uh, you know, it's funny. Every day, I feel like somebody retires who knows this is the pink sheets, and somebody else starts in the industry who knows this is OTC markets. Um, so I'm going to refer to us as OTC markets as we go through the conversation. So you just called me old. All right. I'm going to retire that joke. <laughs> it is our, our history and our legacy, and I can dive into it, right? It's our history and our legacy that we have the pink market, right? That's one of our three tiers. Um, and so it's not something we shy away from. And actually, it's one of the ways in which we recognize that there is risk inherent in in what we do. So, so you know, that's a really interesting point, all right? You know, so so maybe let's just dive into it, you know, but really starting at that 10,000-foot level. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about OTC markets. Like, what, what exactly do you do and what markets do you serve? So we are really the marketplace for all equity securities that trade in the United States otherwise than on a registered national exchange, so the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. It's a universe of roughly 12,000 securities that ranges from international mega caps like Roche and Adidas and Heineken and those huge international companies, um, all the way down to what people think of as penny stocks and the much smaller uh, securities that trade in the US. So what we've done over the course of years is try to organize that market. If you just look at a block of 12,000 securities, it's very hard for brokers, for investors, for regulators to really understand what's happening within that market. So we've tiered them. Uh, at the top, we have what we call OTCQX, which for context is about 600 companies, 600 uh, issuers. Beneath that, we have what we call the OTCQB market, which is around 1,200 issuers, 1,200 companies. We call that more of a venture market. The, so think a biotech is maybe a, a good constituency for that kind of market, a firm that has capital raising needs to be sure, but might take a long time to run through all of its processes until it becomes a, 
a real operating business and, and has gotten whatever approvals it needs and can move on. The similarities between those two markets um, are the requirements around disclosure. So companies can, can meet a couple of different disclosure standards, and I can certainly get into it, but think audited financials, regular reporting cycles. Um, the differences are really in the quantitative standards, where OTCQX has a higher set of standards. It's akin to a listing standard. We're not an exchange. We're an alternative trading system, so it's not specifically a listing, but it's the same kind of idea. Um, and it's, it's just uh, differentiated so that venture companies can have a different set of criteria to meet uh, that really suits their needs. And then the, the bottom market we call the pink market, which really is our nod to, to the old pink sheets. Um, and within pink, we further separate the companies into current information and limited information. It's relatively self-explanatory, but really it's all about indicating to investors and others where there's current information available in the market and where you have a good set of financial disclosure and narrative disclosure to rely on and where you might want to take a second look or ask more questions or, or be more concerned about making your investment before you dive right in. All right. That was super useful. That was super useful. And I think that it's good to also put this in the larger context of really one of the first things that that you said. So if you're an issuer, um, there are some issuers that will that will list on a uh, sort of nationally regulated exchange. So I guess we're, we're thinking here more like an NYSC or or a NASDAQ. And, and then there are other kinds of markets. But again, you're, you're serving you know, uh, through OX, QB, and, and, and the pink market, you know, companies that are not necessarily listing on an exchange. Could you just sort of maybe help the, the audience and the listeners to understand, like, why wouldn't or couldn't a company necessarily list their equity securities on the NYSE? You hit on the right distinction in the question, and, and it really is both of those categories. Certainly, there are some companies who don't meet the requirements to list on an exchange. So that can be things like bid price. Um, it can be market capitalization. There are a number of different ways in which a company um, can't necessarily list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. So we have companies that seek to get there. We call them graduates when they do move from our markets to the national exchanges, and it's something that we celebrate. Uh, we have companies that were listed that subsequently, for whatever reason, no longer met those requirements, but still have an actively traded security that trade with us. And then the, the other part of your question is really companies who choose not to list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Um, and largely, and really for context, it's probably important to understand that about 70% of the issuers on our market are non-US and over 80% of the dollar volume that happens here is, is in international securities. So it's very much weighted towards non-US companies. And many of those, like the Roche and Adidas and Heineken I mentioned earlier, could absolutely list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ if they so chose. But the way our securities laws work, if a company is listed on a foreign exchange, foreign domiciled company, and they take all of their home country disclosure and make it available in English to US investors, they can trade in the US without being a full SEC registrant. And so for a large company in a non-US jurisdiction, that frequently means they don't have to restate their financials from IFRS to gap reporting. That is a tremendous endeavor for you know, a multi-billion dollar corporation. They don't have Sarbanes-Oxley requirements here. They have whatever requirements apply in their home country. Um, and so we're able to provide that value even to US companies. I, I referenced community banks before. Community banks 
Many of them were listed on NASDAQ and could probably still list on NASDAQ if they chose, but they're a highly regulated business. They want to serve their investors. They want to serve their depositors. They are already putting so much into disclosure that if they can leverage that and trade on our market and not go through the, the cost and complexity of being on an exchange, they're going to find a home here. You know, that that is really interesting. I mean, just even trying to think through the comparative sort of advantages of, say, a foreign issuer, probably listing something like an, an ADR or something, and trying to think to themselves, okay, we don't need to restate everything in U.S. GAAP, or, or we're trying to avoid that cost. And then comparing that situation to, to a community bank that is grappling with already disclosures, but maybe disclosures made to regulators, some private, some some public, and then sort of the, the, the general capital market disclosures, you know, and, and, and what it could or could not do, you know, for their business. But but I think that what, what really is is super interesting, you've already kind of hit on on it a little bit, is, is this disclosure issue. Um, whenever you're, you're dealing with um, a company that's not necessarily listing uh, on an exchange, or for that matter, even when you're talking about a private company that's not being listed anywhere, you know, you have this question of, of how do you manage and balance the need for sort of um, capital market liquidity, you know, buyers and sellers, you know, to support um, building a business with investor protection and 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 in some instances consumer protection, and that always kind of comes down to this question of of disclosure. Can you get into a little bit about um, what disclosure means in the OTC markets, and 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 how do you sort of manage that that particular trade off? Absolutely, and it really is a disclosure based philosophy that drives a lot of what we do for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. It's about investor protection, but also just providing enough information for a reasonable investor to make an informed trading decision. There are a number of different uh, disclosure regimes, for lack of a better term, that a company can, can meet in order to be quoted and traded by broker dealers on our market. So I referenced the international firms. Like I said, that's such a big part of what we do. And those companies are meeting that specific exemption. It's called Rule 12G32B, just rolls off the tongue. Um, but they're making their home country disclosure available in English in the US and thus are able to trade here. We have over 1,500 SEC reporting companies. That is kind of the, the standard, what people expect to see in the US uh, in terms of disclosure. So they're making 10Ks and 10Qs publicly available. And then we have a set of domestic issuers who haven't become SEC registered. They're likely because they haven't been required to or because they started instead of with a, an IPO or a large public offering, they did private sales. Those sales seasoned in the hands of the original shareholders and now are able to be publicly traded, uh, there is a disclosure regime for them as well. The SEC has a, a rule, it's called Rule 15C211. Again, nothing, nothing is, is fast and easy in our market in, in terms of regulatory structure. Um, but that rule sets forth an itemized list of what companies need to provide in order to have a broker dealer quote their security on a regular basis. Uh, and so we've adapted that list, we've enhanced it in a number of ways and made what we call our disclosure guidelines um, for those markets I mentioned, for OTCQX, for OTCQB, and for pink. If you want to qualify for current, you have to go a little bit above and beyond. Um, and for us, pink limited means you just meet the bare minimum requirements set forth by the SEC. And what it means for the most part 
is that you can see audited financial information or financial information prepared by the company that has been reviewed by a third party, typically an attorney, um, that will write a letter indicating that they've been a part of the disclosure process. And where those standards aren't met, and this is the piece of a disclosure-based philosophy that, that we have to recognize, and I think every market operator needs to be aware of, is how do you handle companies that aren't meeting the, the disclosure standard? Uh, where that's not happening, we will indicate it with a number of risk flags on our website. Um, we will put a yield sign, for example, on uh, the stock symbol of a company that is in limited information. It means caution. You know, there, there may be some information that you're not getting here that you might expect to get, and you might want to ask more questions before you invest. Um, and where companies are doing things that we think are valuable, like independent directors or indicating that, that they're not a penny stock, we will highlight that as well. There are a number of, of risk and disclosure flags that we provide. Again, we're not, it's not a merit-based system. We're not judging whether a company's business plan is good or bad, um, but we are doing as much as we can to indicate whether that disclosure is available and if it's not, where there might be some discrepancies or some, some deficiencies in what the company's doing. You know, I, I am admittedly a huge, huge disclosure nerd. So I find this really interesting, right? Because you guys are kind of involved in this sort of private standard setting combined with, you know, like SEC mandates, right? So so the SEC has its kind of list. You're kind of looking at the list. It's like, all right, no problem, SEC. We'll, we'll take it from there. And then you're kind of like inserting sort of, you know, um, or, or, or supplementing that with sort of your own sort of judgment about things that who knows, maybe, maybe the SEC, I don't want to say miss, but, but, you know, you've seen maybe in your experience as being kind of important or whatever. Right. And so you have these additional sort of, I guess, benchmarks, it sounds like, and then, and then at, at some point or another, um, uh, you know, you're, you, you are also then providing some, some guidelines, um, uh, I, I, to investors basically, you know, and, and such sort of highlighting certain kinds of disclosures or information that's, 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 that's being made to you guys. So how does that then look like in, in practice? I mean, we have so many different kinds of new, new companies, new technologies that are coming to market, right? I mean, certainly on this podcast, we've spent lots of time talking about crypto, increasingly more about um, AI and generative AI. But even, you know, when you, when you think about this, the range of venture backed companies um, and, you know, biomedical companies and pharmaceuticals and like, I mean, what is, I'm trying to get my arm around like, you know, th that, that standardizing kind of process, right. Of, of, of trying to figure out with all the new information, new, new ways of delivering inf um, information, like what's, what's your philosophy and what's the approach for, for OTC in an age of uh, disruption? I think the, the standard baseline is, is really set by the SEC and, and the disclosure that, that they've, mandated over the years and that you're required to, to put out if you're doing an IPO, for example. Um, so there are certain things that are more or less universal, although that does get challenging as, as new entrants to the market emerge. Um, but financial information, information about the business of the, the issuer, um, who the key players are, who are the insiders and affiliates, whether that's board members or um, you know executive officers, those kinds of folks. 
um, and just some background and baseline information on why the numbers are what they are. Right? Why does your balance sheet look the way it does? Why does your income statement look the way it does? So you can meet that in a number of different ways. Because we have so many foreign companies, we see foreign jurisdictions handling it in different ways. Um, and there are principles-based approaches and there are much more prescriptive approaches. Um, our philosophy is really just to make it all as available and apparent as we can. Um, where it gets more interesting or maybe more difficult is with some of the things that you were referring to. When you start to look at issuers or you know, at least institutions that have units trading in the public space, they don't all look alike. And, and in particular, you know, digital assets, digital asset securities, um, that is a, a brave new world because there may not be a specific board or CEO, right? A, a decentralized organization leaves a lot off to the side of what you would typically expect from, from the SEC. Um, I think for us, uh, one of the reasons, and, and I'll get into kind of what we're thinking about those kinds of firms going forward, but one of the reasons I think we're, we're well positioned to handle these kinds of questions um, is in part because of the discussion we've been having that we think about this disclosure and these different regimes on a regular basis. But even early entrance to the crypto space, um, like the Bitcoin trusts, is, is probably a really good example. Um, so Grayscale has the has a number of different products, but I think the most well-known is, is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Um, recently, the subject of, of a lot of news with a, a legal decision that's going to allow them, or at least force the SEC to reconsider their application um, to be an ETF. And I know you've talked with, with the folks there. Um, but when they first developed the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, they have an asset pool, more or less, composed of Bitcoin, and they have they figured out a way to securitize that so that the units, the instruments that trade are securities. Um, and they, they came to us. We've worked with them since the beginning um, to make sure that they were meeting the prescribed SEC standards we talked about before, while still allowing for some differences in the kinds of disclosure that, that they're able to make. Um, so, for example, with, with GBTC, they didn't do a public offering. All of their um, original sales were private. They were restricted sales, but they did it fully knowing that after those instruments are held for at least a year um, by the, the holder, they become publicly tradable. And so they knew they had this, this runway uh, in order to, to build a public market. Um, and so that's what we were able to facilitate. And they did it through our disclosure standards um, they joined our OTCQX market, so they were meeting the, the quantitative standards. They were very clear about what their model was. It provided some of the first real disclosure on what Bitcoin was and, and made it kind of understandable and consumable for investors. Um, then they subsequently became an SEC reporting company. So still on OTCQX, you know, again, we support SEC reporting companies as well. They transitioned their disclosure into that. Um, maybe more well understood box um, and continued to trade on our markets for actually very successfully over the years. Uh, now to the point where they are, of course, um, pushing for this, this ETF application. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for sure. Shout out to, uh, to Craig Salm and uh, Sunshine. I mean, they were yeah. on the show and kind of walked through, you know, what they were doing literally hours before they were making the first <laughs> oral <laughs> argument. And, and obviously there've been a lot of interesting things that have come through since then. 
And and you know, uh, I mean, th- th- that 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 kind of approach it seems really is is, is kind of necessary when trying to figure out how do you begin to engage new 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 kinds of products. You know, I, I just want to sort of shift gears here because I also have like totally random interest on uh, not just the, the the sort of emerging stuff, but on a couple of the uh, oldies but goodies and necessary folks like like community banks. Um, and, 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 you know, over the years, we've had all kinds of um, both regulators of community banks as well as um, folks from the community banking industry and space uh, come through the show. I mean, so... I mean, truly apples to oranges here. But okay, when you think about like, but but again, you in this particular instance, small, regulated, highly regulated institution that's not necessarily you know um, Facebook or you know uh, GM or something, right? So so you know it's not necessarily some kind of large multinational or something, but has liquidity needs. You know what does that mean for for those kinds of folks? when they're trying to, you know, access public markets uh, through uh, OTC. So first of all, by the way, this is like my favorite kind of conversation. I hope that other people are finding this interesting too, but this is, this is fascinating to me as well. Um, so for a community bank, they're really interested in meeting their bank regulatory obligations, to the Fed, to the OCC, FDIC, wh- whoever it is they need to report to. Um, that is and should be their focus. Um, and more than that, they're focused on depositors first. That's kind of their fiduciary obligation um, under their rules and regs. But to your point, they are a business like any other. They have capital needs. Um, most of them have done some kind of offering, whether that's just to a, a small group in their community, typically actually made up of their depositors, um, or some that have a, a slightly wider audience. It's not a group, you know, there's not a, a community bank in Pennsylvania that's really focused on Oregon investors, right? They, they really are focused on providing the right information to their smaller or more local contingency. And these, these banks will range in size, as, as you know. Um, but a firm like that doesn't need, you know, I, I know where my biases are, but they don't need the cost and complexity of a NASDAQ listing, which is significantly more expensive. Um, on top of everything that they're already doing for their bank regulator. So, for example, our disclosure guidelines that apply to community banks, which is a special segment of our guidelines, particularly on OTCQX, allow them to leverage as much as possible um, the the bank regulatory information that they're already putting out so that there are are bits and pieces that they need to add, there are enhancements that you need to have in order to to support a public market. Um, But it is not nearly the lift that it it would be or was for many of them to be on, on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And it supports their, their community of shareholders. And so for them, we've seen post-Jobs Act is probably the biggest influx. Um, and the piece of the Jobs Act that hit those community banks was increase in the number of shareholders that you could have, holders of record that you could have, without being required to, to maintain um, SEC reporting status. So many of these banks still maintain SEC reporting. They, they choose to do that, but they saw some of their counterparts uh, deregister and delist. Many of them decided, you know, my shareholders are still most comfortable with SEC reporting, but I don't need to be on, on NASDAQ. They, they will understand they, that, that this is a better situation for them and for us. Um, and so they deregistered or they delisted, I should say, came to the OTC market. And now out of that group of 
600 or so OTCQX companies, there are over 100 community banks. And out of our 12,000 total securities, there's more than 600 community banks. So that is a really large percentage, considering the breadth of the market and the different types of companies. They've really, for the most part, found a, a really nice home here. Yeah, you know, that is super interesting. You know, I, 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 I uh, as I said, I, I, I dabble enough in the community banking uh, issues um, and, and, and even sort of policy-wise speak, speak a good deal to the banking regulators. But I, I really never thought as much about what that capital, uh, you know, when you think about like the need for capital for a community bank, you usually think about the depositors and like, you know, the, the deposit base as, as that source of capital. And, and you know, it's really uh, interesting thinking about, you know, what do the OTC marketplace, what does the OTC marketplace mean or look like for for community bank? You know, Dan, this is really super helpful. You know, I, I like to do these kinds of podcasts and these kinds of episodes to kind of provide a little bit of a of graduate education <laughs> of, of sorts, right? You know, so that people can get a, a really a good sense of market structure. And even for a lot of the innovators who are who are listening uh, to the podcast, so they can get a, a, a really, frankly, an understanding, even if they're a technologist, of what the market structure uh, looks like. I guess I'm going to end with this sort of last um, point. You know, when you think about the uh, over-the-counter markets, if you are going to say, you know, if there was one thing that you think people either misunderstand or don't know or realize about the OTC markets, what would it be? I'm going to I'm going to take some poetic license and give you two things. Um, the, the first is you mentioned, you know, founders or innovators or entrepreneurs. So much, so many of those people that I talk to are so focused on the initial capital raise as they should be. And I get that's, that's their lifeblood. That's what they need. But a necessary component to the capital raise is thinking about what happens next. What does a secondary market look like? And so for people in those seats to understand that the OTC market is a fully public market that supports all the disclosure that we've been talking about but doesn't require you to pay a gigantic exchange fee um, and may be able to provide a more streamlined disclosure standard that's just more in line with what you're able to meet. Uh, that I think is misunderstood or just, just not understood. People haven't reached that part of the thought process yet all the time. Um, and so that's really important. The other piece, the other answer I'll give you um, is kind of the way the rest of the, the industry looks at the OTC market. We joked about it at the beginning, right? The old pink sheets. Um, there's a perception out there, I think, that this is the Wild West and there's penny stocks everywhere. Um, and we don't run from the fact that there absolutely are some penny stocks on, on the site and there are very risky companies. And that's why we have risk flags and we put out information about where there's a stock promotion that we see or where a company has a lot of characteristics of a shell, even if they're not reporting as a shell and all of those kinds of risk metrics. Um, it's investor protection because a lot of those same issues happen on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, but there's a perception that, oh, it's exchange listed, it's safe, it's gonna be fine. Where I think we do our best work is in identifying risk and allowing people to understand where there may be an issue um, and also pointing them to the disclosure, whether that's very fulsome and timely disclosure or whether there's disclosure with holes in it, pointing them to the right place to understand the kind of investment that they might make. It's not the Wild West. It's actually quite controlled um, and, and certainly fully disclosed. 
And I think that gives people a lot more understanding once they dive in to, to really look at, at the inner workings of our market than they might otherwise have if they just kind of write it off as the Wild West. Dan, super, super cool, super interesting, enormously valuable sort of insight. I'll have to rope you in to also maybe stop by the school at some point. All right. Thanks so very, very, very much for joining the show, man. Chris, thank you for having me. This was great. Like I said, I could I could do this all day, recorded or not. This was fun. So could I. I mean, it, but you know, it really is. I mean, you know, I always tell people, you know, disclosure, it's like it's the lingua franca of, you know, our capital markets. It's literally the means through which people communicate. So thanks again. And I look very forward to uh, having you back. All right. Thanks, Chris. Much appreciated. Take care. Capital is the lifeblood of companies, big and small, but it's especially critical for early stage companies. But just how to get that blood to the necessary organs can be hard to figure out. In theory, small companies carry more risk, but they arguably carry more reward if they have lots of room to grow. But compliance rules have to balance that need for liquidity with the necessity of ensuring that investors have adequate information to make their investment decisions. Now, as the country goes through its periodic self-examination as to how to figure it out and balance these competing concerns, it's necessary to at least look at the legacy stack to see what approaches we already have that may suit the problem and where we need to be more experimental. Now, in both cases, the OTC Markets Group offers plenty of interesting examples as to how to possibly do both. And in the months ahead, it's sure to play an important role in how the country adapts to emerging technology and finance. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at ChrisBrummerDR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.